0: I want us to read Isaiah chapter 55, beginning in verse 8, and we'll read down through verse 9 as our text verse tonight. Let's hear God's word. The Lord says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts would you bow your head with me as we pray tonight father we thank you for your word that you've given to us by inspiration we thank you for the power of the holy spirit of god we would pray tonight that you'll bless lord through the preaching of your word i pray that jesus would be magnified in our hearts through the spirit i pray lord that you will bring conviction upon our hearts to trust you and lean upon you For all things in life, we pray for those that are without Christ that they would be saved. And we pray for those who are with Christ will be changed tonight through the power of your word. And may you be glorified tonight in all that's said and all that's done. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the course of this year... I am quite certain that there will be many couples who will get engaged. And one of the things that I've learned about engagements here at Bob Jones University is that the measure of a successful engagement is based on the element of surprise. If the guy can surprise the girl, it was all good. I have in my family, a son and a son-in-law. And both of them got two thumbs up on the surprise factor in their engagement. The first was my son Stephen, who got engaged to a young lady named Bethany Roberts. Her parents were missionaries in Japan. She was teaching at a Christian school in Guam and went home for Christmas. And little, little did she know that my son flew from, flew from the United States uh, to Japan and there he set up out in the woods a place where it was all lit up and and all special kinds of things and somehow I don't know how the parents figured it out but got her through the woods and got her to the house and there he was and then of course he got on his knees and and uh, said would you forgive me I mean uh, said would you marry me and uh, they got engaged so he, he got the he got the the, the two thumbs up surprise uh, award my uh, my son-in-law His name is Ethan, and Ethan and my daughter, they live in Salt Lake City. He's a lawyer, and uh, the way he got engaged to my daughter is that she was actually in Israel, and she was there to see my other daughter, and they have friends that have an apartment on the sixth floor of the Armenian hospice in the old city of the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem. And they have a deck, and when you walk out on the deck, literally... Uh, you can hit a golf ball with a 9-iron and hit the top of the Dome of the Rock in the old city of Jerusalem. That's how close they are. And so they go out on this deck and they have dinners and they have what they call Shabbat meals and all kinds of special things. Well, uh, little did my daughter know that my son-in-law had bought a ticket and he had flown to Israel. And there he was waiting on the deck... When she came up for a dinner that night, not knowing that he was here, and when she turned the corner, he was standing there, and my daughter was speechless. And for her to be speechless is short of a miracle. And so he got on his knees, asked her, of course, to marry her, and so they got married. So my son-in-law, my son, they both won the surprise award. Here, when I was a student at Bob Jones and I got engaged to my wife, it was a different story. Because I went to Bob Jones back in the day that you had to have a chaperone for everything. And so we went out that night with my youth pastor and his wife to Ryan's steakhouse. I was a big spender. And then I went over to my youth pastor's house and he looked at me, he said, I'm going to go get ice cream. My wife will be in the kitchen. You got 30 minutes to get it done. <laughs> and I asked my wife in the, in the living room of, of my youth pastor, if she would marry me, and she just was dumbfounded, and she said, I think so. <laughs> and so that's been our marriage for 42 years. So I lost it on the surprise factor. My, my son and son-in-law, they, they won the surprise factor. So with that in mind, let me ask you a question. <clears throat> Have you ever been surprised by God? All of us love good surprises. But what about God? Well, I think this surprise comes out very clearly in the passage of Scripture tonight we read in Isaiah 55. When God says this about himself, he says that his ways and his thoughts, that is the way he works and the way he thinks, is not the way we work and it's not the way we think. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, oftentimes, we'll look at this verse, and we will often apply it to things like difficulties and trials. In other words, the idea is that God's ways in life are a mystery, His providences are a mystery. That is, we can't always understand the way that God works. And when we go through problems, we say things like, well, our ways are not God's ways and our thoughts are not God's thoughts. And maybe you'll be surprised as to what God is going to do through all of these difficulty, the difficulties and problems. So we have little maxims we say like God can turn a negative into a positive. Problems are not stumbling blocks, but they're stepping stones. The doors of opportunity swings on the on the hinges of opposition. Our adversities are our advantages. Or the one when we're weak, that's when we are made strong. In other words, our ways are not his ways and our thoughts are not his thoughts. Now, are those statements true? And the answer is, of course they are. Absolutely. But is that what Isaiah is trying to tell us here? And I believe what we'll discover tonight is something surprisingly different. And what is the surprise? Isaiah here is not primarily speaking when he says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. He's not primarily speaking of the mystery of God's providence in our circumstances. That's not the primary point. But what he is actually talking about is the compassionate heart of God when we sin. That's the big surprise. How do we know that? Look at the two verses that precede, 8 and 9. Verse 6, he says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord. Why? Because he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah is telling us that when we sin, we should seek God. We should call on God. We should not run from him, but we should return to him. And if I do that, what will happen? He tells us God will have compassion on us and God will abundantly pardon us. That is that there is no sin that you commit that God cannot forgive. Now, let me ask you a question, just practically. Is that the way that you naturally feel when you sin? Do you just naturally want to go to God Do you want to return to him? The answer is no. We're no different than Adam when he sinned in the garden and God came to him with a heart of love and compassion. And what did Adam do? Adam ran. Adam hid. Adam was ashamed. His emotions were overwhelmed with a troubled conscience. And this deep feeling of shame. And yet God says to come to me. But what we tend to do is we tend to see God through the lens of our own imagination. We tend to project our feelings... That when we sin, we feel guilty. And when we sin, we feel like a failure. We project those feelings on God so that we think that our thoughts and our ways are God's thought and God's ways. And yet God is saying something surprisingly different. That that's not the way that He thinks. And that's not the way that God feels. And so tonight... I would like you to be surprised as to what God says about Himself. When it comes to the matter of our sins and our shame, what are we to do when we sin? I want to give you just two biblical illustrations tonight that sort of hopefully cements this in your mind. The first is in the New Testament. It's a very well-known story. It's a story about a son and his relationship to his father. We call it the story of the prodigal son. It's the prodigal son returning home to his father after he sins. But what I want you to see tonight is the the attitude of the father and the way that he responded to the son. And it was incredibly surprising. And it was a huge surprise to the people in Jesus' day. Think about what this son did. It's, it's a very famous story. A father has two boys and the second son, the younger son, goes to his dad and he says, dad, I want my inheritance. Every Jewish son, son, every Jewish son knew his dad would give him an inheritance and the older son would get two thirds of the inheritance. So he wanted his one third. So he goes to his dad and he says, dad, give me my inheritance. Now when would that inheritance normally come? It would come at the death of his father. So in essence, he was saying to his father, drop dead. It was an act of incredible dishonor. The son takes that money and he leaves the village, but he doesn't leave quietly. You see, Jewish people grew up in villages where they were actually related to everybody because it was a tribal society. So the village that you lived in, you were surrounded by everybody who knew you. They were your cousins. They were your aunts and uncles. They were your brothers and sisters. They were your grandparents. They were your second cousins. And so in a village, when a son dishonored a father under Jewish law, he was to be stoned. This son was not stoned. But when he left, what did the village do to him? They decided to treat him as if he were dead. And so he takes that money. And the Bible says he goes to a foreign country. It's not like he went from Israel to France. He went to a Gentile city... That wasn't that far away, but to go to a Gentile city, if you were Jew, is like going to a whole different world. And he takes that money, and what does he do with the money? He does what his heart has been craving to do. And that is, he goes and he spends his money on a party lifestyle. He goes to the local bars. He drinks drinks. His his money away, he sleeps with prostitutes. He committed every sin that he could afford to pay for. And soon that money that he had after he had defiled his own body was gone. That money that he had that had been given to him by his father from a piece of land that had been passed down by his forefathers... A piece of land that had actually been given to the Jewish people by God. Because understand something, young person, what you do with your life is not your own life. It is the life that God has given you. Your breath, your life, your hands, your feet, your eyes, your mind, everything you have is a gift from God. You are made in the image of God. And he took what God had given him and he lived out the corruption of his own heart. And what did he do? He ran out of money. And when he ran out of money, he ran out of friends. And he went and got a job. And the only place he could get a job was to work on a pig farm. That's how he knew it was a Gentile community because Jews don't eat Bacon. And he works on this pig farm and he is so low and so hungry, he's willing to eat what was in the very mouth of a pig. He completely defiled himself and disobeyed his God. And one day, at some point, the Bible says he began to think about his family. When you are low, you have a tendency to think back to the times in your life that were good. He thought about his father, he thought about his family, and he decided to go back home. And he formulated in his mind what he wanted to say to his dad, and that formulation was probably the reflection of his own heart. He said, Father, I am not worthy to be called one of your hired servants. In other words, Father, I was your son, and I don't even deserve to be a slave in your family. I am not worthy. Why? Because of his failure. You didn't have to tell him he was wrong. You didn't have to explain to him that he messed up. He knew what he did. Look, I'm talking to many of you here tonight. I don't need to explain to you what you've done over the last three or four months. You know what you did. It's on your heart. It's in your mind. It's in your conscience. You bring it here. You have those emotions. It's all there. In some cases, it's very raw. And so he decides to go back home. And the Bible tells us in Luke 15 that when he returns home and we read the story, we are incredibly surprised. And we're not surprised by the son. The son makes sense. What we're surprised by is the response of the father. And what does the Bible say the father does when he sees his son away off? It says he runs to his son. Now that is an incredibly humble act. Because surely the son should have run to the father. I mean, who did wrong? I have the idea that the father ran to the son. You know why? Because the rest of the village would have met him with stones. They would have stoned him if he tried to come back in the village. And when the father ran out to meet him, the the village suddenly understood the father was receiving him back. The Bible says he falls on his neck and he kisses his neck. That's where... A slave would kiss his master on the neck. And then the father does something very unusual. He says, he puts, he takes his ring off off of his finger. His ring was the signet ring that was used for, if I could say it this way, for business transactions. If you put it in modern language, it's like the father gave him a credit card. And then he takes his son and he puts a robe on his back and he puts sandals on his feet. Why sandals on his feet? Because in the house of the master, the slaves were barefoot, but the sons always wore sandals. And then the biggest thing of all, he threw a huge banquet for his son, a banquet that was reserved for a marriage feast. And he received his son back in. And the story shows us the most surprising thing, and that is the father's reception of the son back in. And we know it was a surprise because what did the oldest son do? He got so upset and so mad. But what does this story show us? It shows us the surprising reality that when we come back to God, God does not reject us. God robes us. God embraces us. But that's not the full surprise. The full surprise is this. What if the prodigal son did it again? Okay, we get the story. All right, the dad received him back. But what if he did it again? How many of you would be irritated if he did it again? Raise your hand. Come on now, be honest. How many of you would be irritated if he he mistreated the father that way? Yeah. How many of you in the, how many of you would think in the village they would be irritated? Okay. Now let me ask you a question. If he did it again and came back, what do you think the father would do? Would he say, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me? Is that what he's going to say? What do you think the father would say? Well, let me ask you a question. When Peter asked the Lord, Lord, if somebody offends me, how many times should I forgive him? And what did Peter say? Jewish rabbis taught you to forgive up to three times you know what Peter said seven times what did Jesus say to him what did he say come on 70 times 7 now is that symbolic or literal it doesn't matter if it's symbolic, it's speaking about God's complete forgiveness. God will always forgive. If that's symbolic, if it's literal, it's 490 times. Let me tell you something. If you do the same thing 490 times, it's called a habit. And what we see that is so surprising is that, is, this, is that the father is a perpetual father to a perpetual prodigal. Because the fact of the matter is, you and I have not done it one time. How many of you have ever sinned, Confess your sin to God, and you made a promise, God, I'll never do that again? Raise your hand. Come on. I'll never do it again. Okay. Let me ask you a question. How many of you did it again? Raise your hand. Okay. God is a perpetual father to a perpetual prodigal. Your sin does not make God reluctant or hesitant to forgive you. And how do I know that? Because he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways, saith the Lord. So why do we struggle to really believe that God is that compassionate? Is it because we have a really low view of God? Could it be that we view God according to our thoughts and our ways, the way that we feel, the shame that we experience, the, the sense of pride because we mess up? John Calvin said of Isaiah's passage here, he said, Isaiah is drawing a distinction between man's disposition and God's disposition. He said, men are in the habit to judge and measure God from themselves. For their hearts are moved by angry passions and are very difficult to be appeased. And therefore they think that they cannot be reconciled to God when they have once offended God. But the Lord shows he is far from resembling men. My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. The truth is, we are all shockingly surprised at God's mercy. I want to give you a second story. And it's a story you're well familiar with, but maybe not quite so much as the point. That's one of the most famous stories in the Bible. It is a story of Jonah. Now, what is the most memorable, naturally memorable point of the book of Jonah? What is it? Jonah being swallowed by a great fish. But is that the point of the book of Jonah? And the answer is no. And when you look in the story and how it interconnects, it is a very surprising message. We begin the story with Jonah being told by God to go to preach in Nineveh. But what did Jonah do? He didn't run, he didn't go to Nineveh. He went the opposite direction. He was going to a city called Tarshish, which is literally in Spain. Why did he not go to preach to the people of Nineveh? Was he afraid of the people? The people were called the Assyrians. They were brutal people. They were, they were, they were, they were evil. They were, they, they made, made the ISIS look like Boy Scouts. Was it a task he couldn't do? Was it too difficult? Did he feel inadequate? Why did he run? And when you look carefully at the book of Jonah, the reason he ran was what he understood about God. Because what happened? He finally ends up in the city of Nineveh. You know the story. He runs from God, ends up in a boat, headed to Tarshish on the Mediterranean Sea. A storm comes. The sailors who are pagans realize that Jonah's the cause of the storm. And Jonah says, throw me overboard because Jonah wanted to die. Why did Jonah want to die? We'll find out. He throws him overboard. He's swallowed by a great fish. Chapter two, he's in the belly of the fish, cries out to God. God. The, he says, salvation is the Lord. And what does the fish do? He throws up the, the prophet on the, on the beach. God comes to him a second time, goes to Nineveh, he goes to Nineveh. Nineveh is 500 miles from where he lived in the northern part of Israel. He gets to this city. The Bible tells us it's a three-day journey to walk across the city. He for one day goes in the city, not three days, but one day goes in and he preaches a five-word sermon. It's longer in the English, but basically in the Hebrew it says, yet 40 days Nineveh overthrown. In other words, God's going to judge it. That was his message. And what happens? The Bible tells us that one of the greatest revivals in all of human history breaks out, starting with the king all the way down to the lowest people in the community. And the Bible says they repent, they put on sackcloth and ashes, and they cry out to God for mercy. And then we come to chapter four. Jonah goes outside the city, he sits on a hill, and he's ticked off, and he's mad at God. And I want to read to you Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to what it says. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. That is the revival. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? What did he say? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Why did Jonah run? why did jonah not go to nineveh you know why because he knew something about god what did he say he said for i knew that thou art a gracious god and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love has said love and relenting that means turning back from the evil that he would do and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew because he knew God that he was so merciful that he would actually forgive the wicked Ninevites. You see, the prophet, when he preached a message, generally gave a message of judgment. But anybody that knows the word of God knows that when God gives a message of Jonah embedded in that message is that if you will repent, God will show you mercy. And Jonah did not want to go to the city of Nineveh because he knew that God would forgive the Ninevites. And if God forgave the Ninevites, then what excuse did the Israelites have if they didn't repent? Jonah knew that God's mercy to the Ninevites was so great. And he also knew that it would condemn the Israelites if they did not repent. And you know why Jonah wanted to die? He wanted to die because he felt like he would become a traitor to his own country if he would go and preach to the Ninevites and they were spared and the Jewish people weren't spared. The reason he wanted to be thrown overboard in the boat on the sea is he didn't want to preach because he didn't want God to show them mercy. Because he was a he was a nationalist for his country. And he wanted to die outside the city of Nineveh after God brought a revival because he didn't want to go back and face his own country. Because if he went back, he would be considered a traitor. And he would have rather died. And do you realize, folks, that in the land of Israel, even to this very day, On the one holy day of the year where the people fast and pray is called the day of Yom Kippur. You ever heard of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement? And they still celebrate that in Israel. And do you know which book of the Bible they read in the synagogues on the day of atonement on Yom Kippur to this very day? They read the book of Jonah. Why do they read the book of Jonah? Because if God will be merciful to the wicked Ninevites, surely he would be merciful to the Israelites. And what do we discover in the Word of God? That God is a compassionate, merciful God, even when we sin, even in our shame, even in our fear. So how far off for most of us when it comes to understanding God's mercy? Isaiah tells us that, that we don't miss it. We don't miss the idea by a little bit. We're not just off by a few degrees. What did he say? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. It's beyond where we are. It's like what Buzz Lightyear said to infinity and beyond. That is the mercy of God. You see, God isn't like you. God doesn't act like you. I mean, we can forgive people up one or two or three times, but after that, we're not really that forgiving. God is not like you. Human love is like a trickle from a sink compared to the Niagara Falls of God's compassion and love. His thoughts are different. His plans, his intentions, and his purposes, they are higher. They are grander. They are enveloped in compassion for which we as sinners have no natural category. He says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and to give you a hope. There's no doubt in my mind, some of you are sitting here tonight and you know that you are enslaved in a sin that you don't feel like you can get out of. And you are sitting here, and it's very difficult to be here at Bob Jones University and be enslaved in a sin because you may want to have victory, and you may want to get over that, but you don't feel like you can do that. How do I do that? And so you're in this, this tension point, can I overcome it? Can I get the victory? And I want you to understand that the pathway to victory over sin is always through understanding the compassion of God. You keep coming back. God's love and God's compassion stretches beyond our puny viewpoints. And that's why the biggest and the greatest surprise of God's mercy is one that you and I would have never dreamed of. And that is God's biggest surprise was 2,000 years ago. God became a man. He was born of a virgin in the city of Bethlehem. He grew up in obscurity in a little village called Nazareth. He began his ministry at the age of 30 by reaching out to those who are poor, those who are outcast, and those who are uneducated. He came into this world to show us who God was and what God said. And they took him and they put him on a cross and they killed him but little did they understand that this was God's purpose and plan because on that cross where Jesus Christ, God's son died, mercy and righteousness kissed each other. Jesus fulfilled the law by his perfect life and Jesus fulfilled the law by his sacrificial death. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died for our sin and Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. And they took him down from the cross and there they put him in a tomb and Jesus Christ broke the tomb as he came out of the grave alive and God extends now mercy to us through Christ, through faith, through believing. And that's not just for one-time salvation. That is for salvation throughout all of our life as we need to be constantly delivered and constantly need to be cleansed. And the greatest surprise of all is Jesus, who has come to live his life for us and to die for us, that we might live our life in him. And so may I say to you tonight that God is the future restorer of the undeserving. Nobody here deserves it. He not only pardons, but he will bring his people into a future that is so glorious that we can hardly bring ourselves to believe it. Is Do we really deserve it? And the answer is no. But his ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. I was a youth pastor for five years in uh, a city up in, in the state of Michigan. My first year when I was a youth pastor, we had a graduating class in our Christian school. The class of 1981. And uh be honest with you, I was, just a, I was just a super proud youth pastor of the kids in our youth group. I loved them. I was, I think, 25, 26. My wife was 24 at the time. We had completely given ourselves to our youth group, so they graduated. And one of the girls in our youth group, her name was Connie. I, I, we love Connie. She was, She was a friend to my wife. And, uh, she, she finished and she came to Bob Jones University in the fall of 1981. When the year was over with, she came back home and, and was home for the summertime. We were just so elated to see Connie, loved her, spent time with her. But by the end of the summer, something that had happened, something happened that had, that broke our heart. She came home that summer and she, had a, a boy that had graduated in our high school but he didn't go off to college he stayed home and he went to work and she got physically involved with him and at the end of the summer discovered that she was pregnant when that took place of course it was um, when we found out it was it was just it was just heart wrenching it was just crushing i'd never experienced like anything like that in my life and um I sat down and I I took out a pen and I took some stationery from the church and I wrote her a letter. I said, Dear Connie. And in the letter, I just wrote her and I told her that we loved her, that God was merciful, that if you would trust the Lord, turn from your sin, God will do miracles and wonders in your life. We wanted to give her hope and we wanted to know that we loved her. Well, short story is, she gave birth to the baby over the next nine months, and she and her family had decided at that point in their life that the wisest thing for them to do was to adopt the baby out. And so the baby was adopted into a Christian home, and Connie ended up transferring to another school, and she went on, graduated, she met a young man, and she got married, And they they moved to Pennsylvania, where they live today, and they started a family, and they've had three or four children. Let's fast forward about 21 years. I am in evangelism. I've been evangelist for many years, and I was the director of a Christian camp in northern Wisconsin called Northland Camp and Conference Center. It was during our staff orientation week before camp started and we had about 150 working on the staff that summer and so a lot of a beehive of activity going on. I was in and out of my office and one day I walked in my office and I looked on my desk and I took a second look and I saw the letter that I had written to Connie some 20 plus years before the original copy sitting on my desk. And I thought, where did this come from? Well, it didn't take me long to find out. that There was a young lady working in our camp that summer who was that little baby that was adopted out into a Christian home, and she was now working on our camp staff. Not only that, but I knew who she was. But I didn't know who her birth mother was because her father and mother had been friends of mine for years and my children, my daughters, grew up playing with her. And we never knew it. And what had happened is that she got up into her early college years and talked to her parents and said, can I meet my birth mother? And they said, yes. And so when they met Connie, Connie had been keeping as mementos over the years with the hope that one day maybe she would meet this special child. And in those box of mementos was the letter that I had written her that she kept as a memory of God's mercy and grace in her life. And over 20 years later, that letter ended up on my desk. And I lived long enough to watch what looked like a tragedy completely turn around to be a testimony of God's compassion and God's love and God's grace because His ways are not our ways. And His thoughts are not our thoughts. So let me say to all of you tonight, if you have sin in your life, what should you do Come like the sun and come and throw yourself on your father and come to the God who is so compassionate that he actually will forgive the worst of the Ninevites because his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me, please, tonight? In a moment, we'll have a word of prayer. But before we pray tonight, I'd like to ask a couple of simple questions. Number one, have you experienced God's mercy and salvation? Have you been saved? Do you know that if you died tonight by the grace of God, you would go to heaven? Have you come to that place of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as the only hope of salvation? And have you trusted and received Christ as your Savior? How many of you would say tonight, Dr. Pettit, the best I know, if I died tonight, I believe without a doubt in my mind, by the grace of God, I would go to heaven. Not because I'm good, but because God has been merciful to me and God has saved me and God has forgiven me. And by God's grace tonight, if I died, I do believe that I would go to heaven. If you could say that tonight, would you lift your hand as a testimony to that? You may put your hands down. God bless you. Here's my second question. Is there anyone here tonight who would say, preacher, please pray for me? I know I'm a sinner. I have a lot of things in my life that I know that are bad. And if I died tonight, I'm not sure where I'd spend eternity But God, I know, is speaking to my heart about my need of forgiveness and my need of a change in my life. And you would say, Preacher, please pray for me tonight. If I were to die, I do not know that I would go to heaven. Would you let me pray for you tonight, sitting right where you are? Would you just simply slip your hand up? Preacher, pray for me tonight. If I died, I don't know that I would go to heaven. Would you lift your hand right where you're seated? Pray for me tonight. Pray for me tonight, preacher. God is speaking to my heart. Would you lift your hand? Now, one final question. How many of you would say tonight, Dr. Pettit, I have, I have things in my life I need to confess. I really do. And to be honest, <clears throat> there are things that I feel shame for. Not only do I feel shame for, but I feel enslaved to some of these things. I feel like I constantly fail. and Sometimes I'm wanting to give up because I don't think that I can overcome. Or perhaps there are certain things in your life right now you you have been hesitant to come back to the Lord, wondering, will God actually receive me back? And over and over and over does God say, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. For I will abundantly pardon because I will have compassion. You see, God is not a reluctant forgiver. But God is willing and far more gracious than you could ever imagine. Who would say tonight, please pray for me. God is speaking to my own heart about some things in my life and, and I really need to come back to the Lord tonight. Pray for me. Would you lift your hand, slip it up all over the building tonight? All over the building tonight. Thank you. you may put your hands down. The best time to let go of your sins, the best time is all right, is always right now. Letting go go of your sins is not a commitment to improvement. That's not letting go of your sins. It is a humble confession to God saying, God, cleanse me. And God, renew me. And God, change me. And if you come to God tonight humbly, God will exactly do that for you tonight. Father, we thank you for your wonderful word. And I pray for people all over this building that they will come back to you. Lord, I ask that you will show some people tonight your incredible grace and the forgiveness that you will show to those who humbly repent. Thank you, Lord, for the promises of your word. And thank you, Lord, that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts or not our thoughts. May you do a great work tonight in the dorms, in times of prayer, and that this will all be for your glory and honor. In Jesus name, amen.